My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Hello. I don't know whether you're listening to this podcast alone or with other people. Maybe at the end of it, you'll feel a little bit differently about yourself and whether loneliness is the same as being alone. That's one of the questions we'll be discussing today with my guest, Nerina Hertz, who's just written a fascinating book, The Lonely Century, coming together in a world that's pulling apart. Now, Nerina, I always like people to introduce themselves. Do you describe yourself as a writer, an academic, an activist? How would you describe yourself? Probably a combination of those. So I am an author. This is my fifth book. I am an academic. I now have an honorary professorship at UCL. I have been involved in big campaigns throughout my career, whether it's around making poverty history or cancelling third world debt or getting people to think more about how to value people we care for more. So a combination of all three, really. So you've written this book and it's obviously a labour of love. There's almost as many pages of references as there is of text, the amount of research that has gone into it. But tell me, before we discuss the kind of core thesis of the book, what was it that inspired you to write it? Was there a particular moment when you thought, this is what I want to write about? It was really three things happening simultaneously and quasi-sequentially. First, I was teaching at university and what I realised was that my students were lonelier than students in the past. They were coming to my office in office hours and they were telling me how lonely and isolated they felt. But I also noticed it in observing how they were interacting in group interactions. They seemed to be much less comfortable interacting in person, face to face. And actually, I was telling at the time an academic, the head of one of America's most prestigious Ivy League universities, what I'd been finding. I was sitting next to him at a dinner and he said to me, we're finding exactly the same thing. In fact, we're finding that incoming students are so bad at in-person interaction that we're having to implement how to read faces, classes for our incoming students, literally a class where they show a student if somebody's sitting in front of them smiles, that means that things are going well. And if they frown, it looks like it's going badly. So that was one of my motivations. I thought, gosh, there's something going on here. Why is this generation more lonely than in the past? And at the same time, I was also looking at the rise of populism, especially far-right populism. And I was interested in better understanding and making sense of its drivers. And as I interviewed far-right populist voters across the globe. And as I really dug into the academic literature, I realized that something that we often had ignored when we tried to explain the rise of right-wing populism in recent years was the emotional state of these people, notably how lonely they were. And loneliness came out time and time again 
as a shared experience amongst this group. And then something else was interesting me, something else very different, also at roughly the same time, which was the rise of artificial intelligence and in particular how it was being used to address loneliness in the form of social robots and care robots, something which had begun in Japan, really, but was starting to pick up in usage across the world. And it was these three things, my lonely students, lonely right-wing populist voters, and the rise of what I think of as a loneliness economy, the market emerging to meet the cravings and needs of people who were feeling isolated and lonely, that made me realize that this is the lonely century, a century lonelier than any century before. Now, all those issues are covered fascinatingly in the book, and we'll get into that in a minute. And this isn't a confessional podcast, but I have to ask, Narina, what about yourself? Was there any sense in which your own experience of loneliness that you had experienced or seen in your loved ones, was that part of it? Was there something about the concept of loneliness that had a more visceral Mm. appeal for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I have, of course, like I'm sure many of us, experienced periods of loneliness in my life, for sure, as a child in primary school i had you know a year when i was felt particularly lonely and excluded and isolated when sharon putz who i write about in my book that isn't i felt a bit sorry for sharon being called out. it was not a real name no, that's really sure that was that was that would have been cool <laughs> so, but so sharon putz you know who you are yeah it made me feel very excluded and isolated and what was fascinating actually was it was also the year when i repeatedly had sore throats, tonsillitis, coughs and colds. And it was only when doing the research for this book, The Lonely Century, I realized that loneliness isn't just something that is damaging to our mental health. It's also damaging to our physical health too. And there's a vast body now of academic literature that argues very compellingly that loneliness is actually as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So those sore throats and colds that I had at that young age really were in part, at least, probably a manifestation of the fact that when we're lonely, our blood pressure rises, our cortisol levels rise, our levels of inflammation in our body rise, we're more susceptible to getting infections, which I find fascinating. So the book isn't just about what's going wrong, it's also a book about what we need to do about it, which takes me to the question that we ask everybody on this podcast. So, Marina Hertz, what is your big idea for the new era we're moving into? My big idea is that this is the lonely century, but it doesn't have to be so. There is so much that we can do individually and collectively to fix it. To kind of expand upon that, I need to perhaps be clear as to how I define loneliness, because traditional definitions of loneliness define loneliness very much in terms of people feeling lacking companionship or company or friendship. And loneliness is, of course, that too. But I define loneliness in a broader way as also a feeling of not only feeling unsupported or uncared for by your friends or colleagues even at work, but also about feeling uncared for and ignored by the government, the state, your fellow citizens. I define loneliness as being political as well as personal, economic as well as social. So my solutions 
are necessarily then not only things that we can do ourselves, but also things that the state and big business needs to do too. This defining of loneliness in these broader terms, in a sense, as a way of understanding the kind of modern condition, you know, put me in mind of the great kind of founding figures of sociology, all of whom had their own kind of concepts which you can connect to your idea of loneliness. So there's Marx's notion of alienation, there's Durkheim's notion of anomie, there's Weber's notion of the kind of iron cage of rationality, as it were, and many other writers, of course, at that time. Anyway, sociology emerges partly as people try to explain the way in which mass society urbanisation is impacting on people's consciousness. So you're, I think, using loneliness in a similar kind of way as to the way, you know, Weber, Marx and Durkheim were trying to grab hold of what was the dislocation at the heart of the modern experience. Very much so. And all of those writers who I reference in my book, of course, yes, and I definitely locate my contemporary definition of loneliness within that body of literature. And you want us to, I think, see loneliness as a concept which can help us understand a whole range of problems in society. So this is why for you it has to be broadly defined, because you're using it as a way of saying this is a way of understanding what's wrong with our economy, what's wrong with technology, what's wrong with the way in which we design our cities. And you think loneliness and the scale of it is a kind of key to unlock a wide set of debates. Yes, a prism through which we can make sense of the big societal, economic and political shifts we've witnessed and been part of in recent years. But yet also you recognise towards the end that people are making quite great efforts to overcome this. That, you know, if you take one example, which you talk about, you talk about customary in the book, you know, that music has become before this, this is before Covid, of course, Live music had grown. Festivals, I, mean, I remember 20 years ago, there was probably one festival in the British summer, and now thousands of people gathering together. It seems as though people are trying to do something about this. For sure. And, you know, in lockstep, really, with the rise in loneliness, we've witnessed a rise in demand for feeling less lonely, manifested by this rising loneliness economy, epitomised by you know, a massive increase in numbers of people who go to gigs, who join things like Soul Cycle, communal gyms, who go to escape rooms, who seek out co-working and co-living spaces, a trend that was really rising very significantly in all these ways, up until, of course, the pandemic stopped much of it in its tracks. Speaking to the fact that we are creatures of togetherness, that we are hardwired to connect and that feelings of isolation and loneliness sit very uncomfortably with us. So I was really taken and I've come across the thought in other places, well, this kind of attempt to locate what's going wrong, not just in the statistics of inequality or exclusion, but in something visceral in our emotions. And I think that's very powerful, presumably as you prepare, because I think the book's out literally today, as you prepare to talk to people about the book and sit on stages and whatever, you're expecting a lot of people to say, well, COVID and what's happening with COVID, what's that going to mean? Is it going to increase our loneliness? Is it going to increase our awareness of loneliness? There were certain things that happened in COVID which were highly collectivist. So how are you going to answer the kind of question of how does COVID change all this? I think if anything, COVID accelerates a lot of the trends that I already saw in the book. One of the things I talked about in the book 
is the rise of our contactless existence. Already before COVID, we were shopping more online. We were staying at home and eating on Deliveroo rather than going to restaurants. We weren't going to bookstores as much. We were buying books on Amazon instead. All of this was happening before the pandemic. Of course, that's one example of where the pandemic has simply massively accelerated a trend. And the trouble with contactless living, of course, is that it's in our face-to-face connections with people that we don't only feel more warm towards others and more connected, but we're also able to practice empathy, kindness, reciprocity, the kind of skills that I believe are fundamental to inclusive democracy. As far as the bluntest metrics of loneliness go, the early survey data that's come out in recent weeks suggests that loneliness has significantly increased since the pandemic. There was a study that came out recently, so it was done in April, so early into the pandemic, it showed that feelings of loneliness had doubled amongst adults and trebled amongst 18 to 24-year-olds. So, And in the United States, recent data that's come out has shown that loneliness and feelings of isolation have been on the rise since the pandemic. So the world was lonely pre the coronavirus. If anything, the world is going to be lonelier now. You're right, of course, to say that at the same time, we did see some really beautiful and heartwarming moments during the pandemic, whether it was us standing on the streets on our doorsteps, clapping collectively for carers, or whether it was you know, lovely stories that I talk about in my book of students in Italy who put a post-it in the foyer of their apartment building saying, you know, we're here for any elderly residents who might need us to go out and help with groceries, or the man in the West Midlands who searched high and low for milk in glass bottles so that he could provide a blind man with milk bottles during lockdown so that they could differentiate between various drinks in their fridge. So there were lots of lovely stories, but there were also, of course, stories of increased selfishness and increased divisiveness during the pandemic, stoked up in part by politicians who used the pandemic as a way of further amplifying divides between citizens with their, the foreigners have brought us the virus type rhetoric and manifest too in the rise that we saw in recent months on online hate and online bullying. So it's been a mixed picture, but I would say the fundamental trend towards an increasingly lonely world has only, if anything, been accelerated. And yet there's more of an opportunity now, perhaps, than ever before to do something about it and to do something to bring us back together again. Yeah, so one of the values of your book is it directs us towards thinking about some of the choices that we make. And, you know, it's interesting, you and I are speaking just as the government is reimposing restrictions on people only meeting in groups of six. And it's kind of interesting that the government now is, as a policy, reducing our kind of sociability. And that's probably necessary. But it was interesting to think of how people are going to perceive, and particularly young people are going to perceive government, when government in their lives is primarily a force stopping them spending time with their friends. 
But, you know, it's a sign of the power of your book that as I was reading out, I had to do a speech at a conference of convenience stores. You know, I would do anything if people would pay me. And, well, it was interesting because talking to the convenience store association, then this is like chains of convenience stores, Tesco's and Co-op and all the kind of local corner shops, not just independent ones, but many of these kind of chains. And it's clear that they have a choice. One possibility for them is to accelerate down the kind of automation and gig work route. So they can say, look, to cut costs, to compete with Amazon, because times are tough. We need to move towards shops with no staff. And you describe going into one of those shops in your book. Or we need to move to staff who are entirely gig workers because we know what the footfall is. Why do we employ people for shifts? We can just bring them in for an hour here, an hour there, an hour. So that's one route. But equally, there's an argument, which because I've been reading your book, I did my very best to amplify, which is to say, no, actually, what is it that a corner shop, a convenience store offers that Amazon can't? And of course, the thing it offers is people who smile at you, people who say hello, people who say, I haven't seen you for a few days, store managers who connect to local charities and think about how they can pass food that could go to waste onto the local food bank. You know, we talked in the conference about social media and the assumption was that when we talked about social media, we were talking about national brands. And I said, no, 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 the social media that I think you should be encouraging your store managers to get into is next door or the local WhatsApp group. You should be encouraging to be part of that because that's the value added of your store. So that was one choice that your book put me in mind of. And I, of course, inspired and transformed the Association of Convenience Stores. I'll never be the same again, having listened to me. But your book's full of choices like that. Tell us about a couple of other areas where you think policymakers need to make different choices and would make different choices if they thought hard about loneliness. Well, I think one area where we clearly do need some big, bold decisions is around how do we bring people together again at a time when conversation has become so siloed and the country is so divided and something, of course, that is true not only here in the UK, but across the globe. And I was inspired in my book by initiatives, some private sector and some public that try to do something along these lines. It's a brilliant initiative run in Germany by the newspaper Die Zeit called Deutschland spricht, where the newspaper had become so concerned about the fracturing of German politics and the siloing of people stuck in their own echo chambers, that they initiated a scheme whereby they would pair up people on different sides of the political spectrum, a kind of political Tinder, as they called it in-house. And so they would pair up somebody who was vehemently against the EU with somebody who was a passionate defender of it. They would pair up somebody who was against immigrants with an asylum seeker. They would pair up people of different socioeconomic groups too, CEOs with factory workers. And thousands of people across Germany took part in this initiative. And all they had to commit to to take part was to meet face to face with the person they were matched up with and speak about anything for two hours. And the results were really fascinating. After just two hours together, when the participants were asked a whole host of questions about how they felt about the other person and more general ones about how they felt about people in Germany, the results were really revealing. People felt much clearer that they had things in common with the person on the opposite side of the political or economic divide. They said that they would be much more willing to include people like them in their social networks. And fascinatingly, they also felt much more positive about the statement, 
Germans care about other Germans. And these kind of initiatives where different types of people do things together, I think are really important and governments could play a role here. President Macron ran recently a pilot scheme of civic participation for teenagers, 15 to 16 year olds, where he got people from a vast array of socioeconomic groups and different ethnic groups to actually spend a couple of weeks together, doing things together, living together, volunteering together, doing activities together, in order that different people could again come to see what unites them rather than separates them. And I think there is a role government could play here, whether it's mandatory shared classes for children from schools of very different intakes. You could imagine shared drama classes or shared sports classes or shared music classes, or whether it is more formal national schemes for young people to have to participate together in some sort of civic duty. These are material things that could make a real difference that the government could do. And then of course there's, you know, and it's only one driver for why we are so disconnected today. Technology, in particular our smartphones, it's not that we weren't disconnected before the smartphone emerged, but what we see is a significant rise in feelings of loneliness and disconnection since its advent. And I would say here Again, government has a role that it could and indeed should play, especially when it comes to regulating hate speech, bullying on social media contents, but also in ensuring that the young don't have access to the most addictive forms of social media. Because what was really clear to me in my research is how disturbing and distressing so many young people find social media and their experiences of social media to be. It is a form of connection that for many is highly excluding, an exclusion that is invisible, in fact, to most adults and parents. And there is now, again, a compelling body of academic literature, very recent, just in the past year, where there have been some really strong gold standard type studies, which show that being on a platform like Facebook really does increase young people's loneliness. And I think the government has a role to play here in even going so far as banning addictive social media for children under the age of consent, putting the onus then on social media companies to make their platforms much less addictive, because of course they've been designed as such. So those are just a few things that governments could do. So much more in my book as well, and so much that we as individuals, of course, can do too. Yeah, absolutely. And I notice as well that as we speak today, we're hearing the findings of the Citizens' Assembly into climate change. And as you mentioned in the book, deliberative democracy is a really interesting method, not just of helping to make decisions, but it's also a form of democracy, which unlike representative democracy, encourages people to find consensus and brings very different kinds of people together. And it's a bit like that German experiment you talked about. Now, Norina, I love the book. It's full of fantastic ideas. But on this podcast, we're starting to develop a slightly different ending to the programme, which is where I'm going to articulate the questions that your book left me with, the things I wanted to, that I wasn't sure about. And maybe that's a bit you know, impudent, given that people are giving their time to come on the programme. But I know you're robust enough for me to ask these challenging questions. So I've got two. I- 
I'm robust enough. The first is that your book is very comprehensive, but there's not much here about the kind of history of loneliness. As I understand it, the idea of loneliness really only starts to emerge in the kind of 18th century. Before that, there's the idea of people being on their own, but the emotion of loneliness only starts to be described in around the 18th century. And the reason I think that's significant is because part of that's partly to do with industrialization and urbanization and the kind of things we were talking about earlier, but it's probably also a little bit to do with secularization. And arguably, you know, the single person most responsible for people feeling a greater sense of loneliness in, in the West is Charles Darwin, because he starts a process that leads to most of us, a lot of us, not thinking anymore that we can never be alone because God is always with us. You don't explore the kind of spiritual dimension of loneliness. You don't mention religion very much in the book. Isn't that a dimension of all of this? It's something that I touch upon in my chapter, which looks at the rise of right-wing populism in the American context in particular, where there is a correlation between places that voted for Trump and declining church attendance and membership in particular communities. So I do touch upon it there. It's something that I thought about when I was writing the book and thought about whether I should address or not. And there are other times actually thinking about it in the book where again, I make references to Frank, who feels so isolated, living alone in the city, who tells me about how much more connected he felt to others back in his small town when he had a leadership role in his local church youth club. So I think there are oblique references. And church or religion of whatever form definitely has historically provided people with a real sense of community and often in many cases a place where people of different ilks did come and congregate and meet together. So so you're right, I didn't go into it in depth, but I think it is a part of the problem. But I don't think the answer then necessarily is that we need more churches. I think we definitely do need, though, more secular places where we can all gather. And one of the other things, of course, I highlight in my book is how ravaged the infrastructure of community has been ever since 2008 and the financial crisis through a decade plus of austerity when we saw over 800 public libraries shut down, a third of youth clubs shut down day centres for old people shut down, these secular gathering places that also, of course, create and instill a sense of community. Yeah, absolutely. And your book is very practical in terms of the things that need to be done. And it probably isn't particularly useful in a practical book to suggest that God intervenes more strongly in our lives. But the other question I had, which goes to the heart of the book, I think, is in presenting this very powerful idea that loneliness is a prism through which we should understand what's gone wrong with society and that it is also a prism through which we might think about how we can get things right. In a sense, that's an alternative, I guess, to more traditional ways in which progressives might talk about what's wrong with society because they might be more likely to talk about inequality, inequality in financial terms or in terms of power, and they might want to talk about poverty, kind of the objective dimensions of injustice. Now, when you talk about loneliness, it's very powerful. But on the other hand, I guess the, my, my question would be that loneliness is a subjective feeling. There is no, as you say in the book, some people are lonely when they're alone, some people are lonely in groups. So it is subjective even though there are certain social factors that make it more likely. And as you also recognise in your book, it's something that goes across the class spectrum. And so there are lonely millionaires, as well as there being lonely refugees or lonely people working in zero-hours contracts or whatever. I guess the question is, is there a danger that 
when we talk about loneliness, because it's subjective and because it goes across society and because, again, as you recognise the book, there are both right of centre and left of centre accounts of what's driven loneliness, that in a sense it becomes easier for those in power to wriggle out of the simple imperative of reducing inequality, tackling poverty, these kind of simple, clear-cut kind of objectives. And it enables instead people to say, well, it's all very complicated and, you know, it isn't just about money. It isn't just about power. But I think the book makes clear, or I hope it does at least, that it's that intersection of economics and emotions, that sense of exclusion, the feeling of exclusion that comes often from being excluded in economic or social or racial terms, that is a big part of why it is that people feel lonely. And this is complex, but this attempt to simplify today's world of many politicians and to go for the easiest choices is one that, as we all know, has led us and is leading us to very bad political decisions being made. Instead, we need to acknowledge the complexity, acknowledge that economics shouldn't ignore the emotional impact of economic decisions. Because if we do so, we do so at our collective peril. And if there's one thing we've seen in recent years is that people vote not only on the facts, but also very much on their feelings. That's a very powerful point to make for us to close on. Well, look, one of the things that stops me feeling lonely is to curl up with a good book, which speaks directly to me. And over the last few days, ironically, the lonely century coming together in a world that's pulling apart has made me feel less lonely when I wake up very early in the morning and I get my cup of coffee. I've read the book and I've heard your voice, Narina, and it's made me feel connected. So thank you for that. And I encourage everybody else who's interested in this topic, who's interested in what Narina has been saying, to get hold of the book. Marina Hertz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.